Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm coming to you over the iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play podcasting networks. We're simulcasting over YouTube. And I'm joined, as always, by a man that's been alternatively known as the Prince of Shadows Banking, the Head of Global Research, the Chief Investment Officer of Alhambra Investments, but you've never heard him being referred to as the Head Economist or Chief Economist, and you wouldn't want to say that to his face, otherwise he would grab you by the lapels and shake you vigorously. Of course, I'm talking about Jeff Snyder. Jeff, good morning. Good morning. I think, uh, you know, where you're going with this is that it, neither one of us are economists, another, classically trained or otherwise, and we both consider that to be a good thing. So um, anybody out there who hasn't gone through, uh, you know, graduate level or even undergraduate level economic study, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And that's what I was actually talking to uh, George about recently, George Gammon, who's had both of us on his fabulously successful YouTube show. Uh, he asked me, you know, how did you get your start? And I said, I got my start by not starting an economics, by not pursuing an economics degree. And uh, I think that's what's kept my brain pliable and receptive to new ideas. And I bring George up because one of George's questions, or at least one of his viewers, Dana Hall, in the comment section, when you were on his show, when you were on his show last, Dana Hall asked, quote, quote, quick question, what's your opinion on the heavy correlation between global central bank liquidity levels and global stock prices? You've seen the charts, right? Jeff, this segues right into an article that you wrote this week. Yeah, and it's 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 a, I think it's more of a signal than it is actual you know monetary substance behind what's going on. And you look, it's it's a very common belief that the Fed prints money, all this money ends up in the stock market because how else are we going to reconcile the two things? The Fed's balance sheet goes up, level of bank reserves, level of money goes up, therefore stock prices go up. There has to be a monetary connection, right? There's no other way to explain how stock prices and the Fed's balance sheet could possibly correlate in that manner. And, and most often when you hear people talk about it, it's this hard and fast, I mean, it's so obvious. Why would anybody argue otherwise? It's no other possible, it's one-to-one -one almost. The, the Fed does it and immediately those bank reserves end up on, on the New York Stock Exchange. And of course, that's not really true. There's far more nuance and substance behind it, especially starting with the fact that stocks and money haven't been related in almost a century. It's been almost, you know, 100 years, got to go back to the early 1930s before you get to a, 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 a way the system worked that actually married up the banking system, reserves, money, borrowed reserves in particular, and the stock market. And so that's really where we need to start is to go back into a little bit of a history lesson that, that starts off back in the 1930s. Jeff, when you say that stocks and money haven't been related, I know what you're talking about because I read your article. You, everyone will be able to read it. It's at Alhambra Investments, and it's called, it's titled, Stocks Haven't Been Moneyed. But what do you mean? I mean, obviously, you buy stocks with money. Are you talking about a different monetary format that is not related to stocks? 
What we're talking about is the monetary system itself. When you or I are, you know, when I buy stocks, my company buys stocks on behalf of our clients, we're using portfolios, we're using savings. We're not using the monetary system as it is, you know, which is based upon the banking system. That wasn't always the case. You go back to the 1920s and before the 1920s and the 19-teens as gold, you know, surged into the U.S. because of World War I, what happened was the way that the American banking system had grown up, especially since the Civil War and the National Banking Act, it had it created what was called the correspondence system. The correspondence system was nothing more than the way that the banks managed the monetary float of what was an increasingly national economy. And so you had people all over the place, companies and businesses and wealthy individuals that had every interest in transacting business across large regions of the country. But as, you know, as, as a, a primitive agrarian economy as the U.S. was in the 19th and 18th century, there was no, you know, there's no, you know, there wasn't any Fedwire system already set up to, to transmit funds across vast distances. So the correspondence system grew up ad hoc naturally, organically, to try to create a payment system, a monetary system that spanned this increasingly national economy. And the way it worked was you had these centralized nodes in the big, what were called central reserve cities, New York being one, Chicago, St. Louis, San Francisco. And then within those nodes, they were connected to what were called reserve city banks, which were the smaller cities placed around those. And then those connected to these, what were called country banks, which are the little mom and pop kind of you know, savings and loan deposits, the, the very kind of banks that you saw in It's Wonderful Life. Those are the country banks. And so what, what happened was each of those levels corresponded to the way that the payment system worked, where a, a country bank would hold a reserve balance with a city bank in case, you know, someone at that bank wrote a check that would go to outside the, the, the country bank's local area and it needed to be presented for payment. Well, it would get presented for payment to the reserve city bank first before it got back to the country bank. So the reserve city bank could use the balance, the reserve balance the country bank put on reserve with the, with the city bank in order to pay, uh, pay out that claim of, you know, a long distance check. And the reserve city banks held even bigger balances at these, you know, central reserve cities, especially New York City. So that we had this national payment system where it all flowed upward into largely New York and Chicago, but in a lot of ways, New York. And the, because national banks were required to hold 25% reserves because of, you know, New York was usually the epicenter of bank panics historically, that was an expensive proposition. So banks in New York and Chicago, to a lesser extent, were always looking for ways to bump up their returns. Because the stock market in New York had become the preeminent equity trading mechanism throughout the country, there was always this, this marriage between the two. It wasn't always, but especially in the, in the 20th century, early 20th century, there was a marriage between, okay, these, these central reserve city banks that have correspondent balances in New York City want to do something with those idle funds. And oh, by the way, the, 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 uh, the stock market is very liquid. So it was a very good match between the liquidity net needs of the central reserve city banks in New York, as well as the, uh, the, the, you know, the willingness or the, the uh, desire for the stock market to increase the amount of funds being traded on exchange. I want to just point out the paradox of what you're saying. You're saying that because the authorities at the time wanted to create a system that was 
uh, well-reserved and safe that ironically, paradoxically, encouraged risky behavior. Because as you write, you said that 25% of reserves that you were required to hold if you were uh, at the center of this monetary system was pushing these banks into risky behavior. And it's, uh, you know, it's amazing that uh, it just, it's the complexity of the system, these unintended consequences where you try to regulate something and in, and in effect, you're pushing it towards more risk, at the opposite of what you were intending. It's, uh, it's remarkable. Can you tell us a little yeah, bit more about that? This, that happens a lot of times. You think you, you create a prudent system or a prudent, prudent regulatory system, and it actually is the opposite. It actually encourages the exact opposite thing that you're trying to trying to encourage. So, you know, again, the correspondence system itself wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It wasn't a bad idea. In fact, it, it functioned very well. What happened was it just, as the, the stock market grew, and especially the, the American economy grew in the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties created a a, a, a massive expansion in the depository financial system that nobody was prepared to handle and really didn't understand the implications of all this bank credit monetary growth and especially the fragility of it being all concentrated upward through this, you know, cascade, you know, pyramid, however you want to describe it, pointed at New York. And it's not, and I have to point out, it wasn't just the domestic correspondence system that was putting all was pushing all these reserves up into New York city. It was also the foreign system because the New York banks were also the central node between U.S. trade and, and especially European trade. So New York banks were, you know, using correspondent balances for street loans in New York City, which ended up on the New York Stock Exchange, as well as even even bigger part of it was foreign reserves that were coming into the U.S. and then being placed, you know, as, as an investment for these street loans on the New York Stock Exchange. And so there was a direct link globally, nationally and globally, between the banking system, the monetary system itself, the intricate guts of the system, and stocks. And of course, that all reversed in October of 1929, which is why the stock market of the stock market crash of 29 is synonymous with the Great Depression. It's not that stock market crashes generically are synonymous with depressions, but the, the October 29 crash specifically with the Great Depression because it was arranged in this fashion. Now we're looking at a graph that it's in your article and it's so uh, remarkably consistent with uh, the expansion up to 2008. I'm looking at this exponential increase in value and you would not have been able to convince me that this was not, you know, not showing what was taking place in cross-border claims or derivative values of present day. So, Jeff, what 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 happened to break that link? You're saying that before there was a direct connection between the bank system and the stock market through street loans, and then here recently we experienced a similar rocket ship exponential takeoff in the creation of money, but somewhere in between. Um, those portfolio savings got disconnected from the banking system. What happened? Well, it's right as you're showing on the screen here. October 1929, you know, the system imploded, which caused the cascade that led into the waves of bank panics that created the Great Depression. And so, the, you know, for that reason alone, street loans no longer became a central part of the, the where 
New York City banks were going to place their, their correspondent balances. And then, of course, you had regulatory response and Glass-Steagall and other things that prudently said, hey, you know, maybe we don't want to marry up the monetary system with the speculative activities. And so maybe we do need to separate these things out because that's a really bad way of doing business. And that's really the difference. You know, I compare and contrast often the crash in 1929 with the crash in 87. Now, the crash in 87 was, you know, on its own in the stock market, similar proportions to what happened in October 1929. But obviously, there was no Great Depression in, 19, in the late 1980s, quite the opposite. The economy of the 1980s barely even noticed that there was a stock market crash. So how do we reconcile those two differences? Why did, the, on the one hand, the crash of 1929 lead to this epic Great Depression that we still talk about a century later, whereas the one in 1987 was kind of just like a historical curiosity? What was the difference? And the, the answer is money in the, the stock market was linked to the monetary and banking system directly in 1929, and in a way it hadn't been for a long time by 1987. You caught me up there, Jeff. I thought you were going to say the difference was Alan the Maestro Greenspan <laughs> came in and he rescued the system. Now, for those of you not on the YouTube simulcast, uh, Jeff is laughing. What was it? What was Greenspan doing in 87? What was he thinking that was linking back to the 1920s? I don't know if he necessarily was. I think, it, you know, from what I've read in the transcript I've seen, it was more of a, hey, maybe there'll be psychological effects along the lines of the Great Depression. We'll get a deflationary mindset, as the Japanese were about to call everything. And so it was more of a overcautiousness on his part when he really shouldn't have been. And so, you know, the Fed really didn't do anything either. In both cases, 1929 or 1987, the Fed was kind of a bystander to both. Now, he, the, what Greenspan did in, in other ways is, you know, he said, he went to Congress immediately said, we might need, we might need additional authority. So Congress expanded 13.3, which is all, you know, the authorization that allows the Fed to do all the stuff it's doing today. Some of that traces back to 1987, but it wasn't the Fed that bailed out the economy in 87 either. But a lot of people actually believe that was the case. And it's, it's, it's helped inspire this legend of the maestro that Alan Greenspan had kept the U.S. system, kept the global economy on track from what was this, you know, a major crash, a major stock market crash in 87, so that it wasn't a Great Depression times two. Well, that just, that wasn't the case. It wasn't ever the case. The difference between the 1980s and the 1920s is that the stock market is a portfolio savings-based system, not a monetary banking connection. Well, let's go back to Dana's question, though. What about present day, Jeff? Can you convince me that this the stock market hasn't been going up? The central bank has been expanding. They even said they wanted to create a wealth effect. They wanted to create this idea that the stock market's going up. That means business will, well, what households will consume. They'll feel wealthier. Cons uh, businesses will invest because there's demand. Everyone knows the stock market and the central bank balance sheet is related. Yeah, and it's related in a psychological way. If you and if you actually, you know, why don't you pull up the chart uh, that shows the Fed's balance sheet with the S and P five hundred? You can see there is a there is a relationship, but you can also see that it's not a monetary relationship. It's a psychological relationship. Uh, first of all, right at the beginning, the Fed started expanding its balance sheet and the level of bank reserves in particular when they stopped sterilizing everything in September and October two thousand eight. 
so the the first step, the first part of the correlation doesn't really work out very well for for the the myth of you know money equals stocks because here is the Fed increasing its balance sheet, increasing the level of bank reserves, and yet the stock market tanked. And it wouldn't bottom for another what six months until March of two thousand nine. So beyond that, though, what happens is the Fed announces QE. The Fed knows that everybody in the financial services industry believes in the Greenspan put, believes in the myth, believes in the magic and the fairy tale and the legend of, of the Federal Reserve. They know that everybody in the financial services industry has been trained, don't fight the Fed. Therefore, all they need to do is signal to most people, most portfolio managers who just, they're itching to buy anyway because higher stock prices, more stocks means higher fees. That's what happens. The Fed signals to portfolio managers in the financial services industry. They say, look, we're going to do a bunch of monetary stuff. Don't ask any questions. Well, you can call it money printing if you want. And that, what happens is it unleashes a torrent of buys across all the funds, all the portfolio managers who are itching to do it anyway. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a Ben Bernanke back then ringing the bell to all sorts of you know, professional uh, financial services managers to start buying stocks, which they do. And, you know, I think 2010 is probably the best example of what I'm talking about because Ben Bernanke in, in August of 2010, in response to what was another deflationary wave building, not just in Europe, but across the Euro dollar system, decided, hey, I'm going to announce in August 2010 that there will be a second round of QE. Now, any normal type of environment, everybody would have said, wait a minute, second round of QE, if you have to do QE twice, maybe the first one didn't work. But that's not what happened. In the stock market, at least, while the economy retreated, in the stock market, as soon as Bernanke announced there would be a QE2 in August of 2010, shares zoomed ahead. It was the psychology effect, in per perfect example of it, because they didn't actually start QE2, balance sheet expansion and bank reserves, until November of 2010. And really, the level of bank reserves didn't go up you know, substantially until early 2011. So it's not a direct monetary correlation. It's a signal to the portfolio and fund managers to start buying because, hey, don't ask any questions, we've got your back. And then what you see throughout history, especially if you go forward after 2014, um, I, you know, where, do, where does, where does uh, that correlation go? Because from 2014 forward, the Fed's balance sheet is at, at most static but then it starts to decline, and yet stocks still go up higher. And you know what's happening there is that the once we hit the 2011 time period, it seems that the stock market actually tops out. Why? Of course, because there's a gross disorder taking place all across the Mediterranean and throughout Europe, and the euro is on the line, but reserves are rising throughout this time period. So again, now they're inversely correlated. Yeah, and you know this very well, Emil, you know, being in the commodity space, especially precious metal. I mean, 2011 was where the commodity top was, the commodity peak. So you could see the, the deflation of building under Euro dollar number two, all the stuff that started to materialize in 2010, suddenly in 2011 became a real thing that the stock market only temporarily priced in with, you know, plummet in, in uh, late July and early August of 2011, before then we get into the anticipation of, oh, well, we got Operation Twist, which if you read the transcripts for the Federal Reserve common, you know, uh, FOMC meetings during the whole Twist debate, they all said the same thing. We're just gonna signal to fund managers that we're doing something. 
And it really doesn't matter what we're doing, just so long as we do something, because we know that every, you know, they're going to buy. If we just announce that we're doing Operation Twist, that'll be the same thing as QE. Even though we're buying assets, U.S. Treasuries in this case, that investors are already flooding into. So it, it's, it's not even, it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous on its face. It's ridiculous at all levels because what it comes down to, it's not a monetary, direct monetary link between the Federal Reserve's balance sheet and the stock market. It's a psychological link for the financial services industry to deploy savings throughout portfolios in a risky manner. Now, it seems that we do finally have the classic supposed, imagined, one-to-one relationship starting with, in 2013, let's say, QE3. And Jeff, a lot of people don't know that there was a QE4. Talk a little bit about the, the run-up until, uh, you know, through the rest of 2014 and so forth. But please tell everyone about QE4, the previously secret QE. I don't really, it's, it's, it's QE3 and QE4 have been combined into one in the popular imagination. Again, the reason you can understand why, because Ben Bernanke doesn't want them to realize that they have to do this over and over and over again. So it's much better for him, the psychology of it, if you think, well, we only did three QEs, which is already bad enough. If you got to do it twice, it didn't work. If you do it four times, that just, I mean, just proves the fact. But there was, in fact, separate QEs in 2000, late 2012. QE3 was an MBS purchase program that was announced in September that began actually purchasing in October 2012. Didn't do much to move the needle. We saw all sorts of repo disruptions, especially late in October and November 2012, which convinced the Fed to come back in in December 2012 with a separate QE, which focused entirely on U.S. Treasuries, which, by the way, their yields were already falling anyway. So, again, it's all about psychology. But when Bernanke said, open-ended, we're going to do this a lot, look what happened in the stock market. The stock market zooms ahead while the rest of the economy almost uh, comes to a screeching halt in a near recession. So when, we first, when I first started tweeting in earnest uh, in late December, there was a Wall Street Journal article, and the headline of the article was, stocks are climbing faster than profits but investors aren't worried. I guess, is it possible that it's just we're in some sort of a bubble and it happens to correspond with this, as you said, the psychological, uh, what the Federal Reserve is doing, but it's, it just happens to be a bubble. It just happens to be that the Federal Reserve is expanding its balance sheet. But as you said, there's no monetary policy. It's just technical puppetry, and I'm quoting you now, designed to make an altogether uncurious financial services industry lap it all up yeah it's a mistake it's a mismatch of expectations right if you're in the camp where you believe that this is money printing that this is powerful stuff then what you'll believe is that eventually that will work in the real economy and therefore that will create the economic conditions that will produce rising earnings so what you're telling yourself what you're rationalizing to yourself is that, okay, QE will work in the future, therefore I better buy stocks today, because if you wait until the earnings actually rise, it'll be too late. That's what, I, you know, it's, it's a component of fear of missing out, whatever you want to call it, but it's a mismatch of expectations. You believe in QE, you better buy today because it'll work at some point in the future. And ever since 2014 in particular, if we go back to QE3, QE4, 
what's happened is the stock market keeps going up, anticipating this, this, this growth was going to materialize, profits were going to zoom ahead and then justify the high level of prices down the road. Earnings would rise faster than share prices and valuations would come down to some more natural levels. That's been the rationalization. But because QE is nothing more than a puppet show, because money has been tight in the real economy, therefore the real economy has been constrained, especially globally since 2014, earnings have done nothing other than companies buying back their shares and goosing the earnings per share. Overall corporate profits have been flat to lower over the last half decade. So in the stock market, you have the QE people, people believing in the Fed, saying, the growth is coming, earnings are coming, earnings are coming, it's always next year, it's always next year, it's always next year. And they never do. Earnings are not coming because there's no money in any of the things the Fed does. So the Fed is very successful at getting the stock market to do its bidding for it, but that in the, in the end is nothing more than empty calories because the stock market is only, is only uh, moving based on a misreading of what is actually psychological effects, not a monetary effect. And if the picture is worth a thousand words, we're showing a graph right now, profits and valuations. I encourage everyone to jump on the Alhambra investment site to check out just this one graph. And it shows, as you were saying, corporate profits, it's so hard to believe. They haven't changed since 2012, 2013, 2014, effectively zero. Let's call it zero for eight years, and the stock market has run away. Jeff, someone that is hoping that this translates into momentum, positive momentum, and it does look really good lately. I mean, after all, in the middle of March, we were plumbing the depths of Hades, we were crossing the river Styx. It was monetary Armageddon, purgatory, inferno. And Mr. J. Powell came forward with a number of programs. This, the liquidity, the greatest liquidity event since NOAA, as we talked about earlier. And recently, the stock market has been rising for, I would say, a couple months now or so. And recently, J. Powell came on TV he was on 60 Minutes, and he explained, uh, you know, that it's under control-ish. They're prepared to do more if necessary. Sure, he snuck in a comment here or there about the economy not recovering until 2021 and a few other items. For those of us who missed the Jay Powell interview, can you give us maybe one, two, or three key takeaways? Yeah, he, he really tried to play up the fact that the Fed was really cool. We had a, we, you know, the first thing he said very early in the interview was, we saw it coming, which, I mean, it's, a, it's such a blatant lie. You have to ask yourself, why are you lying so much? I mean, why do you have to say something like that? And the reason is because he knows he's on the ropes and he has to, he has to pretend like, oh, we got this covered. I mean, that's the whole point here is you have to believe in the fairy tale, believe in the Federal Reserve. Otherwise, you're going to realize we're in really, really big trouble here. If you're counting on the Fed to create this V-shaped recovery, and you look at the Fed's performance during March, it's like, oh, crap. We're, we're counting on these guys? These guys are idiots. They obviously showed it. And so what Powell has done is essentially what the kids call gaslighting. He came on 60 Minutes. He lied his ass off. Let's be honest about it. The guy was just, I mean, it was complete falsehoods one after another. But the first, I mean, 
we saw it coming is what he actually said, which is total, complete, obvious crap. I mean, because they didn't do anything in, in advance. If they saw it coming, then why weren't all of these programs available before the shit hit the fan? Why did they come one after another as they kept trying to do these piecemeal as the crisis was happening, as the stock market was tanking? It was another day, another program, another day, another program. If they had actually seen it coming, all that stuff that's available today would have been available back in late February. It would have been up and ready for the for the system before it hit into its its worst state, not not um, coming online as everything is falling apart. You don't detail it in this article too much. You do, but you do reference the idea that it shouldn't have just been ready in late February, but early 2018. Because we're not just talking about the virus; we're talking about a persistent decline in economic activity that began at least in January, and you could see the rumblings in the, in the fall of 2017, but at least since 2018, all number of signals. Uh, and, you know, so they didn't see it coming throughout 2018, and we could look to the bond market and uh, policy well, your rates. Point, you know, Emil, that's a really good point, because, I mean, just even in recent history, I know uh, Jay Powell was talking about, we, when he said we didn't see it coming, he was talking about March. But really, there's been warning. I mean, go back to last September, that whole big repo thing that everybody's forgotten about. That was a huge warning that something wasn't right in the monetary system. And the way they treated it was the way they treat everything, with more fair tales, more talk, more repo operations that don't do anything with the repo market. And it, you know, it goes back, you go back in time, warning after warning after warning that something's wrong here, that these guys don't heed. And the only thing that changed between 2018 and, and, and early 2019 and, and 2020 with the COVID thing was that it became obvious. So it was less obvious back in late 2018 because everybody was fat, dumb, and happy thinking about, oh, the economy's booming and everything's fine. Well, why are treasury yields suddenly falling? Well, that was a warning, but it wasn't an obvious warning. It was a warning that the stuff deep inside the shadow system, the shadow monetary system, there was rumblings back there that it was very difficult for the regular people, regular person on the street to see. But as a Fed chairman, he should have heeded that warning and he never did. The Fed has been behind the curve time and time and time again. And oh, by the way, their performance in March was I mean, absolutely laughable. So for him to start out saying, we saw it coming, which was such an obvious lie, ask yourself, why is he, why is he lying? And that was, just, you know, that was just the first of the big whoppers that he uncorked on Sunday. What was the second one? The second one for me is the one that uh, brings it all home. It's re it really shakes you up. The second one he talked about, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're right. This is the one that gets me every time is we flooded the system. You know, it's, it's funny because you go back to his predecessors, Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke, even down during 2008, Ben Bernanke was very careful to never say this. You know, he wanted you to think it, but he wanted you to believe it. And he, not that, you know, you believed it yourself. It never came from his mouth. We flooded the system. We can print money digitally. We're going to do it. He never said that. Jay Powell took it a step further because he needs this, this belief, this psychology to be at its most potent going forward because he knows he doesn't actually print money. And what he said after, I mean, at the end of his statement, um, when he talks about creating money digitally, what he's really talking about is bank reserves, obviously, which is, you know, we spend a whole lot of our time on what are bank reserves and why aren't they money? And he knows that they're not really money. He knows they're just a, an accounting fiction. 
you know, an asset swap at the best. So what he told Scott Pelley at 60 Minutes was that he happened to throw in at the end of his, you know, hey, we have the ability to create money digitally. Oh, by the way, we also print actual currency and we distribute it through the Federal Reserve Banks, which was just ridiculous. I mean, why make that state? Why throw that on the end of there? Because he's not doing that. What he's wanting, what he wants you to think and wants you to equate that just listen, everything the Fed does is printing money. He wants that message out there as strong as it possibly can be. Hey, by the way, we print money, which, you know, if you think about it, if you actually printed money, you wouldn't need to say a damn thing. So the very fact that he's lying about this flood and trying to equate it with actual currency, to me, this is a mark of, of a desperate guy. He says, and that actually increases the money supply. And I suppose that's technically, well, no, that's, that increases the, so he's referring to reserve. And that actually increases the money supply. Yes. But does that, that increases M1 and all the M's that have been obsolete for 50 years? I mean, so again, he's, he's being disingenuous and I think he's doing it purposefully. He knows that the M's have been obsolete for years. He knows that bank reserves are not the same thing unless banks do something with those reserves. And why make the comment at the end, oh, by the way, we print digital currency. He is sending the message to everybody that don't question us. We're the Fed. We print money. Stop asking questions. And the real thing about it is, as this was going on, of course, it created the frenzy in the media, which was the whole point. Again, the psychology, expectations management. He knew that everybody would go crazy on Monday morning. And what happened where it actually matters, though? When you look at the bond market and inflation expectations, they zoomed way higher, right? No, didn't do anything of the sort. So again, he's trying, his message is not to the monetary system because he's not printing money. His message is to the general public and specifically the stock market and portfolio managers to, to get everybody to believe that he's printing money when in fact he's not. He's, he's desperate for everybody to, to, to live the fairy tale because that's the only way the Fed can actually be successful. If you believe in the magic, it's almost like Frosty the Snowman, right? If you believe in the magic, it happens. Well, guess what? We're in a situation where we need actual dollars and actual money in an effective way and that's the one thing we don't get. We get a bunch of fairy tales and we get a bunch of psychology. And that's the only way that, that, that he can go forward. And again, that's, I think that's why he's lied so much. And that's why he comes off to me very desperate because he knows he's, we're in big trouble here. And he sort of hints at that obliquely by saying the economy may recover, maybe by the end of next year. Kind of, sort of, sort of, maybe. Yeah, and I think that'll be news to most people. Remember, Powell's whole shtick, his whole psychology shtick is to be as most optimistic about everything as he possibly can. That's, that's really what expectations management comes down to. And not only did, you know, before he said that even, I mean, go remember what he said first. Oh, uh, we got more tools in the toolkit. You know, we're not out of ammunition by any stretch. We got more we can do. We're, we're money printing. We got money printing up. The, we got money printers that print money printers. I mean, it was just, we're, we're, don't, you never question us. We got everything covered. That's really the, we've got it covered. We can print money. We've got all of the stuff we can do, but you know, the economy may not recover till the end of next year, which is, I mean, <laughs> you talk about burying the lead here. That's really the story. We may not have to wait until Christmas, 2021, because Jeff, we are approaching another mid month of quarter end book squaring 
monetary bottleneck at the end of June. Is that something that you're looking towards as uh, perhaps the next place to keep our radar up and be on the lookout for some sort of a disorder, just as we had in March, just as we had in September, although we didn't really have something quite as visceral as we did in December, as in we did in September and March. Is there a difference between March, June, September, and December in terms of quarterly bottlenecks? Yeah, there's always that seasonality behind everything. It's usually the March and September quarters that present the most trouble. That's why, I mean, historically, you always see bank panics in the fall, usually around October, September. There's, there's, there's a deep embedded hum, human nature in, involved in, you know, underneath the, you know, you can get into all sorts of fractal geometry and things like that. But there are, there are specific reasons that such seasonality continues to plague the modern system because it's a fact of life. You know, we do, the things are still tied to the seasons. And so for whatever reasons, um, we don't need to get into them right now, um, the March quarter and the fall quarter, September, traditionally the, the most, the most uh, blatant, if you want to use that word, the blatant of them. But, you know, we do have the June bottleneck looming. Historically, that's not been a problem, but we're in aced historic periods. And so it'll be very interesting to see if we start to see some of these signs of reverse and liquidity kind of creep up and where they might go if they do show up in the middle of June. But the big one in my mind is where, what's it going to be like when we get to the September bottleneck? What is that going to look like? Because by then, you know, not only will we have a better idea of how the economy is progressing since the shutdown, we should by then be well into a wave of, you know, bankruptcies, defaults, loan problems, those kinds of things that are really, I think right now are being, completely unappreciated, completely understated in the idea that, you know, contrary to what Jay Powell just said, the economy's the, the common belief under the V-shaped scenario is the economy's going to recover like tomorrow. And so, so here we have Jay Powell, the most optimistic guy possible saying, oh, you know, maybe next year. I myself am wondering where are the bankruptcies? Where is the second wave of economic shock? And I don't see it. I thought we would have, but it's a question that I'm going to pose to you in a future episode. And for anyone that's listening right now or watching, and you have a question, you know, we do mailbag shows. So let us know what kind of questions you have. You can post them on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP and at Emil Kalinowski. And you can also go to the YouTube channel at Alhambra Investments, and you can post the questions there, and I'll be able to answer a decent number of them. And for those that I can't, we'll send them out to Jeff. And we're trying to do a mailbag show once every four episodes. Jeff, thank you again for your time, and I will talk to you again next week.